want to ask you a question. Suppose someone came up to you and said, hey, what's your church like? How would you answer that question? How would you describe Fayette Baptist Church? Now, you can try this by taking your bulletin and flipping it over onto the notes page there and jotting down a couple of words, six words or less, your description of Fayette Baptist Church. You could try that. Hey, what's your church like? What would you write down? Well, some of you might begin by describing the physical characteristics of the building. Others may attempt a description by writing a denominational label, saying it's a Baptist church. Still, someone else may paint a portrait by describing it in terms of financial status or attendance figures or even its history. All of which may be truthful identifiers, but could also lead to superficial and inaccurate judgment. For example, if a church is described as old and established, people may think of a place that is cold and traditional and inflexible. If a church is described as small and quaint and located in the country, it may conjure up thoughts of a warm, cozy, inviting kind of an atmosphere. A rural label might actually prompt one to imagine an archaic, small-minded, and technologically challenged place of ministry. Certain denominational labels may be stereotyped as rigid, legalistic, and intolerant, while others may seem, be seen as wild and doctrinally shallow and off the deep end, so to speak. The house church, the seeker church, the emerging church, the multi-site church, the purpose-driven church labels, they all foster mental images in your mind, don't they? As one person has written, how erroneous, how unfair. What leads us to believe that we can determine the style or convictions or beliefs of a congregation from a quick glance at the architecture of its buildings or the name of the place? An accurate description of the church requires something a lot deeper than a structure or a title or a scandal or a location. It better because when Jesus used the word church, he wasn't referring to any of those things. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he was referring to people. Not buildings, not denominational badges, not budgets. He was identifying a people called out from a sinful worldly lifestyle and a belief system into a new community. A new community which is convinced of his truth, controlled by his spirit, and consumed with his glory. An invincible people. An invincible people led by Christ himself and able to stand unmoved before the greatest of opposition. But then something happened. If you were to ask someone in the first century where the church was, they would have pointed to a group of worshiping people, maybe gathered in a house somewhere, or maybe even gathered in the temple, or maybe gathered in hiding. Today, however, in fact, ever since the third century, the emphasis has progressively moved from the people to the structure, or even the style by which they operate. It's interesting to study how people have categorized churches over the years. One author I read divided churches into four different types. There was the body church. This is a church that has no property and needs none. 
Their gatherings are arranged according to convenient places to meet. It's comprised mostly of small groups meeting together as a corporate body only a few times a year. The same person said the next kind of church was a cathedral church. This church sees the building as the church. Everything that happens in the name of the church happens in the building. And then there's the tabernacle church. This is a congregation where their building is only secondary. It is not considered sacred as such, but merely provides a facility which helps it in its functions. Things happen outside the building and sometimes far removed from the building. And then there's the phantom church. This person says this group prides itself in having no building of any kind ever. The problem is a serious lack of organization and mutual accountability. It is described as being not unlike an inkblot test. Each person is able to make of it whatever they wish. The late Lyle Shallard, well-known church analyst of years gone by, once divided churches by size. He divided them this way. The cat church, that's a church that is small, fewer than 35 people. And then there's the collie church. That's 35 to 100 people. And there's the garden church, 100 to 175 people. And the house church, I don't know why he called it the house church, but 175 to 225. And then there's the mansion church, which is 225 to 450. If a church had 450 to 700 people, he considered that a ranch. And anything over 700, he called a nation. Actually, a mini denomination. In his book, A Church for the 21st Century, Leith Anderson, a pastor himself, identified some of the shapes and forms of the church today. There are mega churches, which you all know about. That's uh, churches with 2,000 or more people that attend. Some refer to those with over 10,000 members as giga churches. Matter of fact, Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, being the largest church in the United States, could be called a giga church with over a purportedly 43,000 average in attendance weekly. Then there are meta churches. These are popular overseas. These churches are based on a network of small cell groups that function as specialized ministry centers. They also multiply themselves by training leaders and forming new groups. They gather for worship, but ministry is decentralized into offices, homes, etc., etc. It is not limited by land. It's not limited by buildings. The potential for growth in this kind of church is astronomical. So currently, the largest meta-church in the world is South Korea's Yoido Full Gospel Church, which was founded by Paul Yonggi Cho. And that full gospel church is a Pentecostal church affiliated with the Assemblies of God in Seoul, South Korea, with about 800,000 members. 800,000. That's uh, reportedly in 2018. Over 157,000 cell groups, and on Sundays they have at least three arenas which house over 100,000 people in each as they meet. It is the largest Pentecostal Christian congregation in South Korea and the world for that matter. 
Then there are seven-day-a-week churches, and there are house churches and Christian mosques targeting Muslims, TV churches online, Walmart churches. There are non-churches and traditional churches. One of the most practical groupings that I have run across over my research over the years is written by Paul Sailhammer. He says that there are three types of churches, really. There's the donkey church. The donkey church, this is a standard garden variety church. Size is unimportant. What is important is its faithfulness to stay at the task. It handles the burden of ministry like a donkey. It stays at it and it gets the job done. The second one, he says, is a racehorse church. That's a congregation built around one person. He's the only one to put your money on. Under his leadership, there are brief times of phenomenal growth. The drawback is that when Reverend Hot Dog is gone, the church drops back to where it was before. Salehammer suggests that what we really need to do is mate a racehorse church with a donkey church. And you come up with a mule church. That's the kind of church you want to have, he says. He says it's got the stick to and the stability of a donkey along with the explosive dynamics of a racehorse. Individual, there are individuals in the church which give, which give it direction, give it momentum, give it appeal, give it leadership. Yet, like a donkey church, it stays at the task. But there's one drawback. A mule church is sterile. It cannot reproduce itself. So what in the world have I learned from all of this research? Well, actually something very important and practical. Trying to pigeonhole our church, or any other church for that matter, according to a man-made classification is nothing short of impossible. Every church carries with it the unique fingerprint of God. What may seem to work in one local church may not necessarily work in another. And have you figured out why yet? Because what makes a church truly contagious in the community is not the ministry strategies and philosophies of man's imagination. It's the biblical absolutes of God. Yes, methods and strategies are absolutely important and they must bend and flex with the times and they change and they morph. However, whether it's a country church or a city church or a mega church or a mule church, the foundational ingredients which cause a church to spread and to grow and to multiply biblically have not changed since the day the church was born. One well-known Bible teacher observed that the early church quickly became so contagious it was not uncommon to find even young Christians that were willing to die for their faith. So what was it that actually caused that kind of church to be contagious? And can we have that kind of an impact today? Well, I, I think absolutely. Do we have to abandon all the modern approaches to experience that kind of impact? No, absolutely not. But at its core... And I think the real question you're probably asking right now is what does a spiritually contagious church look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. 
Because from the first century to the 21st century, I believe there are some common threads which run through every church that has enjoyed the blessing of spiritual contagiousness. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're going to look at, over the next couple of weeks, verses 1 to 20. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. Let me just read down through this. Follow along with me. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers." Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost." But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in prison, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. Now, while specific church models are scarce, if not entirely absent in the New Testament, the Thessalonian church may serve as a good place to begin to uncover some helpful insights to us. And the amazing thing to me is that Thessalonica is only the second place Paul preached the gospel in Europe. Moreover, it seems he only ministered there for about four to eight weeks. In other words, it wasn't a long ministry for him, about two months at the outset. But it was intense and it was fruitful, proving that building a biblically contagious church doesn't depend necessarily on a large amount of training or a complicated infrastructure. 
but on a huge amount of commitment from people. Bottom line, a biblical church will be a contagious church. I find at least six things here that Paul built into this church through his ministry that I believe gave it a contagious appeal. Six areas that our church must excel in if we are to be fruitful and successful in God's eyes. Now, don't panic. We're not going to look at six today. Just two. We'll finish the rest next time. But first, a spiritually contagious church will be committed to biblical accuracy. I'm sure that's no surprise to you to hear that coming from my mouth. Committed to biblical accuracy. First two verses. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness of our God to speak to you the gospel of God amidst much opposition. And reading through the two Thessalonian letters, there is simply no getting around the fact that Paul emphasized strong biblical content as he founded the church there. And as he reflected on his ministry in Thessalonica, Paul's attitude was that it was well worth his time and his energy. That's what it says here in verse 1. You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. His ministry was not worthless. It wasn't hollow or empty or without purpose. He came with biblical content. He preached the gospel by which they were transformed and to which they became committed. Looking at the text, we find that Paul came with three things necessary for a commitment to biblical accuracy. Let's work down through them quickly. He came, first of all, with a spiritual focus. Verse 2. And I just read it. But focus in on that last part. We had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of our God amidst much opposition. The gospel of God. Circle that, underline it, highlight it. Notice the constant repetition of Paul's purpose here to the Thessalonians. Uh, verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Verse 8. Having a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own life. Verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, our working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you. We proclaim to you what? The gospel of God. Verse 13, again, for this reason, we constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, that you accepted it not as the word of men, but as the word of God. What stands out in Paul's mind when he thinks of the church at Thessalonica is the gospel, the word. The word of God's message. He's not thinking about programs. He's not thinking about methods. And he's not thinking about styles of doing ministry. It's not here. He left that for them to decide later on how they were going to operate. That was totally a localized thing. That's why I think we don't have models of the church in the New Testament, very many of them. It's all based on the Word of God and how the Spirit's leading. So under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he left that for them. But his focus was spiritual. He was giving them the truth in word and in life. And that is my primary role as a teacher and a pastor here in this church. It's to preach the truth. That's one of the primary purposes of any church as a whole. 
to uphold biblical truth. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 says very clearly to us, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The pillar and the support of the truth. Believe it or not, that is what makes the church spiritually contagious. It does. A church that does not teach the truth or live the truth is a contradiction in terms. People may ask, will it work? Will it work? According to the words of Francis Chan in his recent book, Letters to the Church, he says, I don't even know what that means. Will it work? Do they mean will people show up? Or will they like it? Or more practically, will your church grow, meaning in numbers or in attendance? Uh, these, he says, are actually the wrong questions to ask. Jesus never used these things as metrics of success. Paul actually told Timothy that teaching and sound doctrine will not work. In fact, it will drive people out the door. 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. They were read here this morning. They happen to be my life verses. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Underline it. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Will that work? For the time will come, he says, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. They will turn away their ears from the truth, will turn aside to myths, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Timothy was commanded to preach the truth, not because it works, but because that's what God wants. The church must be a repository of truth in the world. Yet when you're committed to biblical accuracy, you also have to come armed with something else. You have to come armed with personal courage. Personal courage. Verse 2 again, back in 1 Thessalonians. Paul says, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, we had the boldness of God to speak. Paul literally jumped out of the pan and into the fire by coming the Thessalonica. Right on the heels of a Philippi fiasco, you, all you have to do is read Acts chapter 16 to find out what happened to him there. He heads right into more of the same in Thessalonica. These were tough times for Paul. He was beaten, humiliated in public, stripped of his clothes and his dignity, ignored as a Roman citizen, thrown in the slammer, put in the stocks, and finally he was freed by an earthquake and eventually run out of town back in Philippi. You'd think he'd give up at that point, right? Take a breather, lay low, soften his message a bit, but no way. Look at Acts chapter 17 for a minute. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. 
And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received the pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Well, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. You see, he, he leaves one city of persecution and walks right into another one. But did it water down his message? No way. Commitment to biblical accuracy requires personal courage. But does personal courage mean that we're never going to be afraid? And we get this notion that, I mean, he's Paul, right? He's Paul. He's Paul the the bold, Paul the preacher, Paul the warrior. We don't think that he thought twice about his opposition, right? Don't believe it for a minute. This is what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. In his second letter to the same group of people, chapter 7, verse 5, he says, For even when we came to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. See, there were times when Paul was shaking in his sandals, trembling at the thought of speaking the truth, just like you and just like me. But his commitment to the gospel and his trust in God were stronger than his fear. And that's really what courageousness is, isn't it? It's not the lack of fear. It's continuing on and doing what you want, what you need to do, what you're called to do in the face of your fear. And that's what enabled him to speak with boldness in the face of extreme opposition. He came with a spiritual focus. He came with personal courage. And then he came with a powerful conviction. Verse 2 again, he said, he said, we had the boldness of our God to speak to you the gospel. You want to avoid opposition? I'll tell you how to do it. Stop preaching the gospel. Hedge on the truth. Churches that promote human opinion and material prosperity, no matter how eloquent, no matter how insightful, no matter how appealing, are doomed to spiritual failure. And the people who swallow it and follow it are destined for spiritual disaster themselves. That sort of teaching may tickle the ears and it may build the biggest church that you've ever heard of. And I said, use that term church lightly, loosely. But you know what that sort of teaching does? Tickles the ears, but it kills the soul. A spiritual contagious church is committed to biblical accuracy. Second thing. Second thing. 
A spiritually contagious church also communicates with personal authenticity. Verses 3 to 6 in 1 Thessalonians 2. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God and been entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Let's just stop there for a minute. The first thing you need to know about personal authenticity in a church is that the message is authentic. The message is authentic. Verse 3, our exhortation doesn't come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. There's no self-delusion. That's the error part. There's no immoral personal motivations involved. That's the impurity part. And no plan for deception or exploitation, no duplicitousness, no deceit involved in that message. These things are the characteristics, by the way, of a false teacher. 2 Peter chapter 2, and this is how you can spot them, verses 1 to 3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Those are the false teachers. You know what disturbs me? Ligonier Ministry just published their results of a survey of the state of evangelicalism. Those results are very disturbing. 80% of professing evangelical Christians believe that Jesus was God's highest creation, created being. And another question, evangelicals believe that Christ is deity. You see the disparity there? What do they believe? Where are these people that are responding to these surveys getting their theology from? It's disturbing. Read the New Christianity Today and find out what those results are. It'll open your eyes a little bit. Do you know what you believe if you were to answer that survey? We're bombarded with every, from every angle with a myriad of preachers spewing garbage out into the world which, and into our ears, which masquerades as an authentic message of truth. Yet all one has to do is observe the habitual lifestyle of the preacher and his disciples to understand what they're really promoting. The proof, Jesus said, is in the fruit. A good tree does not produce bad fruit, Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses, verse 18. Neither does a bad tree produce good fruit. One of the greatest problems today is that many people don't take the time to scrutinize the teaching or the teacher. They just go with the flow and wonder why they struggle with dissatisfaction and spiritual emptiness. Listen, a biblical church will be spiritually contagious when it communicates not only through a message that is authentic, but also through authentic messengers. The messengers are authentic. Verse 4, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Notice what it says here, right in this verse, the whole sermon in itself. They are endorsed by God's hand, okay? They were approved by God. They're entrusted with the gospel message, God's message, entrusted with the gospel. 
and they were engaged, they are engaged for God's pleasure and for his glory and examined by God's spirit. It says we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. John Stott once said, in the ideal sermon, it is the word itself which speaks, or rather God in and through his word. The less the preacher comes between the word and its hearers, the better. Is that right? An authentic teacher will funnel people toward the word, toward the word, not toward himself or herself. That's why I strive to back up everything that I say with scripture. I don't want you to take my word for anything. It's not worth your attention, but God's word is. One of the notable and noticeable characteristics of Billy Graham's preaching was how many times he repeated the phrase, the Bible says, the Bible says, he spent his entire ministry pointing people all over the world to God's word by that recurring phrase, the Bible says. I don't think ever once in the whole time that I ever heard him preach did I ever hear him say, Billy says. Never. And it's precisely there that his authority and authenticity broke through. You want to know what's so great about that kind of authenticity? And it's not just for preachers who preach like from pulpits. This is for every Christian that carries the gospel into the marketplace. You know what's so great about that kind of authenticity that you could say the Bible says? Because the more you use the Bible, the less you worry about pleasing people. Because the more you and I are concerned about pleasing God by presenting God's word, the less we are affected by what other people think. Because it's not about us. Listen, Friends, a church that is more concerned about soft-stroking people than it is about pleasing God is a church on the road to compromise. As one man has said, show me a man who tells the congregation what they want to hear, and I'll show you a man who has stopped expositing the book. The question that should always determine any course of ministry in this church or any minister in this church, or any other church for that matter, should be the question that's asked in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. That ought to be plastered on every ministry leader's office door so that they can see it, mine included. Here's the question, Paul says, for am I now seeking the favor of men or God? Should be our prayer every morning when we get up. And the answer to that question will not only determine whether the message and the messenger are authentic, but also will determine the third criteria of a church's authentic communication, and that is that the motivation is authentic. The motives are authentic. Verse 5, for we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor were the pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. Look again at Paul's words here. This is no thin veneer of false sincerity. Paul says he was authentic to the core. No slick salesmanship for personal gain. No hidden agenda for greed. No interest in self-promotion. No pulling rank or throwing around his weight as an apostle. And the sincerity of his motives never changed. They stuck. 
I know that because he later wrote similar words to another church in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Listen to these words. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. See, Paul's motivation was pure. That kind of character, when seen in the lives of, of the church, church's leaders and the church people, is what makes a church spiritually contagious. Don't you see that? Years ago, someone approached me and asked, well, why don't you take an offering, take advantage of the large crowds, you know, over thousands of people that used to come to our living nativity. Why don't you take an offering when they come and offset our costs by taking that offering? And the answer to that question is right here in verse 5. Because we didn't come with flattering speech, nor were the pretext for greed. It's not the responsibility of non-believers to support the church. The gospel is given free of charge. Christ paid enough of a payment for it, didn't he? It is, however, the responsibility of believers to support the work of the church, right? Friends, we need churches that are sold out to personal authenticity. Churches that are more interested in spiritual depth than numerical breadth more interested in people than they are in programs, focused more on commitment than they are on cash flow. Churches that preach an authentic message by authentic messengers with authentic motivations. No phoniness, no two-facedness. We need churches that say what they mean and mean what they say and back it up with a life. Churches that teach truth, admit failure, because we can do that. We better do it. Stay focused, and they're upfront and real with people. When a church majors on those qualities and lives them from the pulpit to the pew, guess what happens? People come. They can't help but come. That kind of church is contagious because it's biblical. As I prepared this message, the words of a well-known author got to me as he issued this challenge in his book that I just read. He wrote these words. He said, we expect people to be captivated by our speech when our lifestyles are not that compelling. Just think about that for a minute. Are we all guilty of that? To some extent. We pat ourselves on the back when we can showcase some happy families with virgin children who don't swear. That is hardly proof God is with us and not with them, he says. And he's absolutely right. If we were able to look objectively, we could see why the average person is not banging on the front doors of our church buildings. He used an illustration to which we all can relate. And I'll, I'll share it with you before we close. He said, 20 years ago, my wife went to the gym. When she got home, I asked her how it went. And she proceeded to tell me she took a step class, a big deal in the 1990s, right? But she didn't get much out of the workout. And when I asked her why, she explained that the instructor was so obese that it was hard to be motivated by her. 
Lisa wasn't trying to be mean. She was just used to having an instructor who makes her envious. This is how they all, they, they sell fitness machines on television because they know it motivates us, right? They find a totally chiseled man or woman working out in one of their machines and tempt you to pull out your credit card because they're selling hope. You're hoping to become like that person if you just get that thing and put it in your bedroom and hang all your clothes on it. <laughs> right? And when I read about, <laughs> he says, when I read about the Apostle Paul, I'm challenged to become like him. When I read about his longing for Christ in Philippians 1, and perseverance through suffering in 2 Corinthians 11, and love for people in Romans 9, he said, I wish I could be accursed myself if my countrymen would be saved, right? It stirs me, he says. I want to look like him. I want, I want his peace. And like Paul, I want to come to the end of my life and know that I didn't waste it. It was not just his words, Paul's words. It was his life that moves us, right? And when people see us and hear what we say, we want to be that person that they look at and say, I want to be like her. I want to be like him. And the answer is, not to be like us. It's to be like Christ, because that's what you're seeing in us, right? Some time ago, I was listening to a talk by R.C. Sproul while driving in my car, and he made a, an incredibly provocative statement. When I heard it, I almost drove my car right off into the ditch. This is what he said. Listen, listen carefully. He said, what God wants in the world is profane Christians. What God wants in the world are profane Christians. Now, you know there's a little bit more to that story, right? It almost sounds like a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? Well, he explained that. He said the word profane in our culture means worldliness, crassness, crudeness. Our word profanity refers to what? Off-colored language, right? But that's not what he was talking about when he made that statement. Sproul was talking about the word profane in its historical root meaning. He meant it in that statement the way Martin Luther meant it when Martin Luther called the church to practice profane Christianity. The word profane originally comes from the Latin profanus, which means outside the temple. A profane Christian then, in the sense of Martin Luther's meaning, is a Christian who takes his or her Christianity out of the church and into the world. In other words, he's a Christian in the marketplace or she's a Christ follower in the public place. He or she is a man or woman of God out there, not just in here. That's a profane Christian in Sproul's and Luther's sense of the meaning. So now that that makes sense to you? A profane pagan is a person who embraces the world and all its worldliness. A profane Christian is a man or woman who embraces the world as the arena of redemption where God has sent us to bear witness. 
Make sense? And what in the world is that supposed to look like? I think it will look a lot like what Paul begins to describe here that we just looked at today. A spiritually contagious church, it will be committed to biblical accuracy as foundational, and it will communicate with personal authenticity, a spiritually authentic message given by spiritually authentic messengers with a spiritually authentic motive. 